Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a look at the grandest of all grand operas, Verdi's Aida. This marks the sixth time we have brought Aida to our stage in our 51-year history, and today we'll talk a bit about the legacy of the opera, its plot, and speak with Detroit Opera's Associate Artistic Director, Christine Gerke, who makes her role debut as Princess Amneris in this performance of Aida, which will be seen in concert form on the stage of the Detroit Opera House on Friday, December 30th. Verdi's Aida is an opera in four acts with libretto by Antonio Ghislanzoni. This opera was commissioned by the Khedive of Egypt to open its new Khedival Opera House in Cairo and not to open the Suez Canal, as is often believed. It was proposed to have a grand and celebratory opera set in ancient Egypt, and Giuseppe Verdi agreed to the commission for 150,000 francs, the equivalent of a million dollars in today's currency. Uh, Sadly, though, the opera's premiere had to be delayed by a year. Uh, The sets and costumes, meticulously designed by the Egyptologist Auguste Mariette, had been made in Paris, and there they sat collecting dust blockaded by the Franco-Prussian War. The premiere did finally occur on Christmas Eve, 1871, and was an instant success. Verdi did not attend the Cairo premiere, one of the few times he missed one of his own openings, but he did carefully supervise the first Italian staging a few weeks later at La Scala Milan, which he considered the real debut. It would be 17 years before Verdi would return to the theater, and in old age, uh, cap a fantastic career with two final masterpieces, Otello and Falstaff. So Arthur, you mentioned that it's commonly believed that this opera was commissioned to celebrate the opening of the Suez Canal. That's not the case. Do you know how that rumor got started? Originally, that w- they actually did approach Verdi about writing something for the Suez Canal, and he declined. And so uh, later on, the Khedive uh, approached him and, and went through the uh, you know went the operatic way and said, "Hey, how about to help us open this new opera house?" And so that's uh, he finally agreed to that. There you go. He'll write opera for the opera house, not opera for a canal, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. But I guess for a million dollars, he'll write opera any way you want it. I suppose. There you go. Hey, with that commission, who's going to say no to it? <laughs> so, so let's get into the plot of Aida. So when the opera opens, Egypt is at war with Ethiopia. A young Egyptian warrior, Radames, is in love with the enslaved Aida, an Ethiopian woman, and therefore one of the enemy. In his first act aria, Celeste Aida, he sings of her heavenly beauty. Their love must remain a secret, as Aida works in service to Amneris, the daughter of the pharaoh, who herself is in love with Radames. Radames is then named supreme commander of the Egyptian forces as Egypt begins a new war with Ethiopia. This forces Aida to choose between her love for Radames and her own people. She gives voice to her despair in her aria Rintorna Vincitor. As time goes on, Amneris grows suspicious that Aida may be her rival for Radames' affection, and she tricks Aida by falsely claiming that Radames was killed in battle. When Aida becomes almost inconsolable, Amneris knows then that Aida is her rival, and she reminds Aida that as princess, she will always win. This is the setup for the many dramatic confrontations which will play out in the third and fourth acts. So high drama with this opera, without a doubt. <laughs> Most definitely. One of the things I love uh, that Verdi does and was so effective at, this idea of public duty versus 
personal desire. All these folks, you know, obviously Rodimus is an Egyptian warrior. His allegiance is to, uh, to Egypt, but he's not supposed to be in love with this, you know, Ethiopian, which we later find out actually is a princess. Uh, and then she, in her case, uh, you know, he goes off to war against her own people. And she has, of course, she still has love for him, even as he goes off to fight the other Ethiopians. So uh, this idea of duty, uh, public duty, as I mentioned, and personal desire, he always is able to work that conflict in. And it's always a great backdrop to these stories. And once, you know, put fantastic music on top of it uh, and you have a real drama. Absolutely. I, I love how character driven this opera is that there's that, you know, internal conflict for the characters that is not only the external, you know, all of the love triangles, all of the things that are happening between these characters interpersonally, but they're really struggling within themselves as well. Um, and that just adds an incredible dynamic on top of um, the incredible music that this opera has as well. Arthur, what can you tell us about some of the music that we'll hear in Aida? Ah, well, you know, that uh, the triumphal scene in the second act, we all know it with the trumpet call. It starts out. It's one of those tunes that people know, but they don't know it's necessarily from Aida. But uh, the triumphal scene is certainly one of the greatest uh, spectacles uh, on the operatic stage. But uh, also uh, later in the third act, uh, I love the seduction scene when uh, as Omniris is trying to get these military secrets uh, out of Radames and she just spins this very seductive line. He can't help but uh, tell her everything he knows. Uh, and then that follows up with the fourth act where we really see uh, the, dra the drama of Omniris' scene where she pleads uh, uh, for him to, she's trying to save his life basically, and she's pleading for him to give up Aida so that he might uh, live. And so she might have uh, this love back. So very, very dramatic, just dramatic from beginning uh, to end with some fantastic tunes. I think of uh, the, the tune uh, that the king of Egypt in the first act, when he sort of calls everyone to war, this tune, very, very, it's one of the, again, one of those tunes that people don't even realize is from Aida. Once they hear, they go, oh, I've heard of that before. I just didn't know that was from an opera. I should also mention, you know, the chorus uh, is very, plays a very important role in that uh, triumphal scene. So there's like 200 people on stage with you know, double chorus, there's high priest chorus, there's, uh, you know, regular citizens chorus, you know. So it's, uh, it's quite dramatic in that uh, second act also, especially when it comes to uh, the choral singing. So massive amounts of sound will be coming off that stage. But I'll say in, con in, in, con in contrast to that huge forces, in the, for example, in the second act, we have these very intimate scenes. For example, the, as I mentioned, even the first scene, uh, the first uh, when he comes out to sing his Celeste Aida. Uh, and of course, the uh, jealous Amneris, uh, you know, sees this this look on his face, this rapturous look on his face, wondering, uh, you know, is she singing? Is he singing about her or someone else? I was going to say, I would mention one more thing. Even in the very beginning, I just thought about it. Originally, uh, Verdi had written a big overture to start this opera, but in the end, he ended up dropping it at the just after the premiere. Just a very simple sh string opening, just a few bars, uh, which leads us right into the, the conflict with uh, Radames and, uh, and uh, Amneris in the very first scene. Mm. Do we ever hear that? Does any company ever bring that back in? Toscanini had recorded it back in 1940, just on album, you know, and records of those days, probably 78s, I guess, in the, at that time. Uh, but then it really hasn't been heard of since. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the only time. I think it was recorded once. It was premiered once, and then it was recorded once by Toscanini, and that was about it. So most people have not heard it. That's the that's the Aida Easter egg for everybody who's listening. Go look on YouTube for for that recording. I have no doubt that we can find it. But, uh, yeah, a little a little behind the scenes fact there for us to dig for. 
So after you go and look up that recording or perhaps listen to other recordings of past Aida's, uh, we can't wait to welcome you to the Detroit Opera House for this new interpretation of Aida, featuring such an incredible cast, some role debuts, including for Angel Blue, for Christine Gerke. Uh, we just can't wait. Um, and we want to dig into it a little bit further uh, and welcome a special guest. Arthur, can you give an introduction for us? We are so pleased to welcome our special guest to this podcast. She is the leading Bogdarian soprano on the operatic stage today. She opened our current season as Brunhilde in a fantastic production of The Valkyries. Uh, she is Detroit Opera's Associate Artistic Director, who is making her role debut as Omneris in this performance of Aida. Welcome, Christine Gerke. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Arthur. It's a pleasure. Well, you know, I remember in our interview that you so graciously granted me back uh, during the pandemic in 2020, uh, just before you had opened that production of Twilight Gods, you had dropped a nugget or two that we might see some unexpected role debuts from you in the coming seasons. And you didn't disappoint. Within just a few months, uh, you gave us uh, Santuzza and Rusticana, your first, uh, and now you're taking up this dramatic role of uh, Princess Omneris and Verdi's Aida, wondering uh, why this role and why now? Why not? I mean, <laughs> she's amazing. Uh, I, why now? Listen, I I have always wanted to sing this one. Um, it's interesting talking about uh, different role debuts, and we were, I did say that they would be unexpected. They feel unexpected today, but if you start thinking, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years back, things were not as cut and dry as things feel today as far as what singers sing what parts. Um, even in Wagnerland, where I usually live, uh, very often, you know, the Brunhildes and the Zieglindes, they would switch roles. And the Electras and the Chrysotomeses, they would switch roles. And there was a bit of that as well here. You know, I, we can point to specific singers, which we'll get to, that have sung both Aida and Amneris. But it is looking at the kind of roles that sit right in the middle without going into crazy detail. When you're talking about singers, you know, we all know sopranos or mezzos or contraltos or tenors or basses and baritones. But they, for those of the people who are smart enough and lucky enough not to have to know all of the details, there are subdivisions within each of these uh, voice types. And so very often people call me a dramatic soprano. Okay, well, this is true some days. Uh, and uh, But then the difference between a dramatic soprano and a dramatic mezzo is one half step in the range. And so it really depends to me on color. It depends on tessitura. Where does the role sit most of the time? So for a role like Amneris, the range is there. The top is there. There are C flats, there are Cs, there are low notes below the staff. But these ladies do not sit up at the top of the staff the whole time. I like to think of them as uh, the cool aunt who gets to uh, have the high notes for a second and then give them back <laughs> and go back to the middle where they like to live. So I am right sort of in the middle of all of these things. I love to sing these big dramatic roles, but roles like uh, Eboli and Amneris, as far as what Verdi wrote, those two roles really just sit between soprano and mezzo land. And that is what God gave me. Uh, aside from the fact she is unbelievably cool. And wouldn't you want to sing her too? 
Most definitely. I mean, of course, I love the role of Aida. She's very sympathetic, but there's a lot of layers going on with um, Arison. I'm sure we'll talk uh, more as we uh, as we go along. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that brings me to, to to my first question. You know, Amnadis makes her first appearance in the opera in the final bars of Radames's big ario. He's singing about Aida. He's got this rapturous look on his face. Um, and your character kind of starts fishing. You remark to him about uh, how lucky is the woman that puts the look on his face. But of course, then he lies to you. He says he's dreaming of victories on the battlefield. He's not thinking anything about love. Um, you know, when Arthur and I were talking, we were wondering about the backstory between these two characters. You know, has something gone on between them before. Um, we wondered if you had an opinion or what are your thoughts as you're approaching this character about her relationship with Radames? Uh, this is one of the very first things I wondered about myself. And you can find a couple of clues to point to whichever direction you would like to think about this. I think that there was something. There was something. I mean, I think that he was always viewed as the person to assume the mantle and she is the princess and they are the likely couple, you know, most likely to get married and rule Egypt. Uh, and I do think that there might have been an inkling of something going on before he went off to the first part of this battle and before he met some other special person. But I think that she knows her status and she knows her worth. And I don't think right off the bat, she could imagine that the person that he's dreaming about is anyone but herself. And I think, I mean, you know, I feel this is why would anybody else possibly garner his attention? And I think that as she starts prodding and as she starts poking the bear a little bit, she starts to wonder exactly what's going on. You know, the ex-boyfriend's back in town. You're pretty sure you're going to get him back. It's not really going to be a thing. But what is, is something really happening here? Is this not about me? Wait a minute. So then everything starts to become very heightened. Verdi so clearly put this in the music. I mean, you know, there's there's a moment of, so, uh, what you doing? <laughs> my, my kids watch Phineas and Ferb all the time. That's what it feels like. What you doing? Great. Welcome back. So uh, what you thinking about? Isn't he right? But she is... Um, to me, this character can very easily be a horrible villain. She's not wonderful. She doesn't do great things, but she comes to understand who she is, what she is capable of, and what she could have done to alleviate this entire situation. Though guilt doesn't solve the problem, it shows that she is not as awful as she may seem which to me is the most interesting thing about any character finding the flip side of who the quote-unquote villain is well that actually brings me to my next question you know i first got the opera bug uh back in 1985 specifically the aida bug when leontine price did her final performance which is live on the met uh, that year january 3rd 1985 i remember the date uh and at that time i totally saw amneris as the villain uh, of course, I was 18, but as I've gotten into my 50s, uh, I've you know I've evolved and I start to see her a lot more sympathetically. And, and, and as a woman who truly was in love, what are some of the challenges, vocally and dramatically, to make that happen so she just doesn't seem like she's just the big villain? Well, I, the funny thing is, is that I mean, Verdi has written some stunningly beautiful melodic line for her. I mean, the top of the second act, the, the boudoir scene, as everyone likes to call it. I mean, there is 
such a gorgeous limpidness to this. And I truly feel as though she feels as though things are going to be okay. She's going to make this work. She will have this man back in her life. Everything will be okay. And the passion which with which she fights for him by the time all is said and done, it's too late. There's nothing to be done, but it having the duality in the character allows everyone to be able to see colors in the vocal lines, as well as the way that Verdi wrote for it. But textually, it's also something that's cool to play with because she says things that are really awful to Aida, for example. She's like, oh no, it's really cool. Come on. I'm just like your sister. You can tell me everything. You know, the thing is, yes, that is manipulative. Okay, I will admit that. Does she have anyone else like that in her life? And it is amazing to be able to play the dichotomy of feeling how wrong that is versus what there could be as far as compassion. So as we approach this performance of Aida, you've worn a couple of different hats, Christine. You are um, not only, of course, playing this role we're discussing, but you are actively involved in the casting of this opera um, in your role of associate artistic director. And I wonder if you can talk about bringing Angel Blue to Detroit to uh, debut this role here with us. Um, and also just about working with her and what we can expect uh, between the two of you, especially in that second act in that dramatic duet where you both realize you are in love with the same man. Angel is a miracle. I am so excited that she's coming to join us. And I know that anyone in the vicinity of the Opera House should get there to hear her do this. Um, Angel and I have been friends for quite some time. And um, in the course of a conversation, she had mentioned to me uh, that she was going to be doing her first staged Aida. And I immediately jumped on this and said, well, wouldn't it be nice if you had a nice, safe place to do it for the first time with orchestra? And what if it was our house? <laughs> and she was absolutely game. I'm over the moon. Um, during the pandemic, she and I lived within 15 minutes of each other in New Jersey. Uh, and she has put out a great many videos. And she, of course, had her... Um, her show that she did online. And one of the things that she constantly was asking is if I would be able to come over to her house and we could record that second act duet. Um, and uh, I kept saying, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And we never had the opportunity to do it. So when this opportunity came up, she was absolutely excited about it. Um, we've been speaking every day, in fact, actually talking about the characters, talking about how we want to go about things. Um, I, I'm really very proud that I'm able to do this with her for her first time and for my first time. But I'm more proud that we are able to both of us bring both of our firsts to Detroit. We, we just got a great scoop. Now we know how this all happened. Uh, this other debut of her coming here, have I? Did not know that story. Sorry, Royal Opera, we scooped you. <laughs> That's amazing. We're so lucky to have you both, and how incredible to be able to do this with such a great friend. And what can you tell us, Christine, about the rest of the cast? I am so thrilled about this cast, actually, I have to say. Um, I rarely get to brag on my friends, but being able to have put together this particular cast for this concert 
with this group of artists. I am beyond proud of the group, but I'm really proud to be part of this group. Um, as we know, we have Angel Blue who's singing Aida, who is just an astounding artist and a beautiful human being. Jonathan Hayward has just been appointed the music director for Baltimore Symphony, which is incredible. Uh, he is a spectacular conductor, and I'm very much looking forward to working with him. Uh, Ricardo Massi, who has been here before as Radames, is rejoining us. He is one of my favorite tenors, so I'm thrilled that he's coming. As Amon Azro, we have Reginald Smith Jr., who is a spectacular singer, and I know that the moment you hear this booming voice, you will never forget it. Morris Robinson is rejoining us. He was with us for Twilight Gods. Kenneth Kellogg, who was famously and heartbreakingly the father in blue for us, is coming back to join us as the King of Egypt. Uh, as I mentioned, Melanie Spector, who is one of our resident artists, is going to be singing The High Priestess. And Leo Williams, another one of our resident artists, is going to be singing The Messenger. And so I... I couldn't be more excited about this particular group of people. You had mentioned earlier talking about uh, it wasn't so unusual that, uh, you know, maybe within the same opera, there might be switching of roles. We know so many people who have, you know, Charlie Brett, so many people, Dimitrova, people who've gone back and forth with the roles. Uh, was there a particular um, Neris that uh, maybe on record or about video that maybe you saw over the years, you thought, ah, maybe that could be something I would like to, you know, take a bite at. Well, the first one that I ever experienced live, I was singing The High Priestess, uh, which our wonderful resident artist Melanie Spector is going to be taking on uh, here in Detroit. But I was singing The High Priestess when I was in the training program at the Metropolitan Opera, and Dolores Zajic was singing Amaris. And it was the first time I'd heard that voice live. And uh, I thought, well, I'm never singing this role, <laughs> uh, because who's going to ever sound like that? But the funny thing was, she came to me that day and sa sat down near me and she said, uh, how's it going? And I was terrified and three. And she said, I said, it's fine. Thank you very much. Massaging. Everything's fine. Uh, she said, uh, well, we mezzos have to stick together. I said, well, I'm not a mezzo. She said, who told you that? And I, th I thought, ah, identity crisis. And the funny thing was that day really did point to something very important that would be with me for the rest of my career. Those kind of roles, as I was saying earlier, that sit in the middle, you know, it's either a soprano with a big middle or a mezzo with a great top. Um, you know, these are those roles. And watching her do this and how she negotiated this role was incredible but it was definitely her exclusive thing because God only put one of those voices on the planet. <laughs> However, I, I was really amazed by her interpretation and I started nosing around. And the person that I went back to time and time again was Grace Bumbry. Uh, and I was very interested in the power behind the text the lyricism in the line her fierce chest voice and the nobility in the sound and that was something that I found quite remarkable and I you know she was obviously one of these ladies that sang both roles and so I would imagine I have not sung both roles I do not plan on singing both roles but I would imagine that having the experience of 
being on literally both sides of this, it it brought something to the character that I found really irresistible when I was listening to it. We are in for such a special evening with these incredible artists, Christine, with you and with Angel Blue at the helm. Um, as we come to a close here uh, with you as our guest, I would just ask as a last question, is there anything more that you want to share with our audiences about Aida or anything that you hope they take away um, as they plan to come on the 30th? I think that anyone who comes into the theater will obviously first notice that the orchestra is not in the pit. I would love to give a shout out to our orchestra. Generally, when people come in to see an opera, the orchestra's in the pit, and our orchestra is spectacularly fine. I love to work with them. They are amazing musicians, and I'm actually so happy that they are out of the pit so that the entire audience can enjoy what they do. I also would like to say to anyone who has not gotten their tickets yet, if you are hesitating because this is not a fully staged production, but a concert performance, please do not think for a hot second that there will not be performances on that stage. You will get a show. <laughs> so please come and join us. I mean, it's the day before you have to really, really celebrate. Why not come and do it with us? Well, Christine Gerke, every time I speak with you, I get a new scoop and you gave us a couple of scoops. Uh, today, thank you so much for being our guest. We can't wait to see you as uh, Omniris. It's my pleasure. I can't wait. Thank you so much to Christine Gerke for being our guest today. And thank you, too, to everyone listening to our glimpse into Detroit Opera's exciting performance of Aida. We hope to see you at the Detroit Opera House on December 30th at 6.30 p.m. for this one-time event. To purchase tickets for Aida or to find more information, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks to Matthew Principe for his assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the Opera.